While no one knows what tomorrow may bring, Bridgestone is working toward a more positive outlook. With innovations like developing a tire using 75% recycled and renewable materials. It's just one of the many ways Bridgestone is making a difference today, for generations to come. Because that's what really matters. Bridgestone, solutions for your journey. Visit whatreallymatters.com to learn more. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream is a total chocolate game changer. We start with unbelievably creamy dark chocolate ice cream. Then we add different chocolate treats, like chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, or chocolate brownies to make four decadent chocolate flavors. Because sometimes the thing that pairs best with chocolate <laughs> is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary dairy. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 2000. And it's time to check out a videotape called American Psycho. everyone and welcome to Unspooled. Hey everybody, I am Paul Shear, joined as always by Amy Nicholson. It's a show where we watch great movies and debate whether they are actually great or we just remember them that way. And of course, on this show, our goal is to build the ultimate list of 100 movies that we will blast off into space so that aliens can understand us and the beauty that humanity gave to culture around the globe and the international solar system and beyond. And I think that it's wonderful that we're doing a movie today where the lead actor thought, I'm going to play this character like a space alien trying to understand humanity. It's the goal of our show with a little bit more blood. And you are being 100% correct about that. That was the way that Christian Bale approached the role of Patrick Bateman. It is truly become this iconic performance that's so bizarre, so unique, and it almost didn't happen. We're going to get into how Christian Bale got this opportunity and all the hurdles that he and Mary Heron had to jump, all the directors that were in the way of making this movie that even to this day, the author of the book, American Psycho, thinks didn't need to be made. <laughs> oh, Paul, I'm so excited to rewind this movie with you and avoid our late videotape fees. So tell Willem Dafoe that you have a meeting with Cliff Huxtable and put your messages on mute as you sit back and hear how we debunk some of the rumors that have gone around, actually bring up a brand new rumor that we're going to try to parse and tell you about a musical number that could have happened in this film. It's all going to happen as soon as we unspool it. The year is 2000, and baby, 
This moment has been a long time coming. Back in 1991, Brett Easton Ellis publishes a novel about a wealthy finance bro named Patrick Bateman who loves victimizing people with his taste and opinions and pop music before straight up filleting and chainsawing them to death. Straight away, people in Hollywood were like, this should be a movie. And Brett Easton Ellis was like, uh, should it? I mean, I don't think it should, but Hollywood said, totes, dude. And we know who's going to make it. Stuart Gordon, the director of Reanimator. And they wanted it to star Johnny Depp. That merger fell apart. And then so did the next merger. Director, David Cronenberg, star, Brad Pitt. That did not work out for a lot of reasons, including a musical number that we are going to talk about later. So now Lionsgate is heading up this third merger. Mary Heron and what's his name? That kid actor. You know, he was in that cereal commercial. Pac-Man's inside. Pac-Man cereal. Part of this nutritious breakfast. Yeah. Eh, nobody knows or cares about that kid. That kid was in Newsies. And you know what? Let's fire Mary Heron for insisting on that loser because we've got an idea for a fourth merger. This one's going to be the cool one. We're going to crank this movie up from a little indie to a blockbuster movie. We're going to quadruple the budget for Oliver Stone and Leonardo DiCaprio. Okay, you heard that right. Let's take a pause here and imagine the Oliver Stone and Leonardo DiCaprio version of American Psycho. Okay, and make sure you're not picturing today's slick back DiCaprio. You gotta be that skinny, sexy DiCaprio fresh off of Titanic telling a bartender, I want to stab you to death and play around with your blood. There's a lot of controversy around this casting and a lot of controversy that this film is being made at all. And even when, for reasons that we'll get into, Stone and DiCaprio drop out, Mary Heron and her pick, that loser, Christian Bale, reacquire it. Protests about American Psycho get headlines during filming. Protests get headlines throughout its premiere at Sundance, throughout its release on April 14th, the year 2000. But the movie does okay, and audiences eventually come around and appreciate this take that Mary Heron and her co-writer Guinevere Turner have put onto Brett Easton Ellis' novel. The movie actually makes Christian Bale, that nobody guy, a movie star, and it even makes it onto Broadway as a musical. I want you to listen to a little bit of the opening number. Now, just picture the Patrick Bateman guy shirtless. Picture a bunch of dancers in, like, suits. They are representing Manhattan streets. And here we go. You see me gliding, but there's something hiding in the shadow, shadow, shadow. I may be dealing with a nameless feeling. Uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. But everyone keeps saying that I look amazing, so I don't know, don't know, don't know. I want it all. So what was in the zeitgeist that weekend of April 14th, 2000? Well, the number one song in the charts was Carlos Santana and Maria Maria. Why don't we let Patrick Bateman himself tell you about it? For top 40, the Wyclef John guided Maria Maria possesses the metal to allure the hip side of the format with another left field surprise that makes it clear that Carlos Santana's integration into the late 90s is no fluke. Already on the air in Miami and other markets, this song sounds cooler than an autumn breeze on the airwaves, pressing a driving hip-hop beat amid Spanish guitars and the subtle tones of Santana's gifted electric guitar. This track is as much groove as anything, and yet it works in a way that defies typical explanation. Plain and simple, 
It just sounds damn good. That is amazing. <laughs> wow. But I have to say, it doesn't feel exactly like Patrick Bateman. Because when Patrick Bateman talks about music, he is a lot more animated and a lot more passionate. That felt to me like Christian Bale couldn't really get back to that place, but had to do this sort of promotional work. But wait. I feel like I, I wanted <laughs> I wanted a little bit more. Oh, wait, that's not real? No, that's not real. I'm so sorry. I'll oh. credit to Billboard magazine who actually okay. wrote that review of, of Maria Maria. And they wrote it, Paul, in such a convincing, accidental Patrick Bateman way that it accidentally confused you and the AI voice that our wonderful producer Josh Wait. put on top of it. Oh my God, I can't believe it. You tricked me. <laughs> you tricked me. I thought for sure they like did some sort of weird promotional thing back in 2000. That was good. Wow. You got me. You got me good. You got me. That's the first get right here. You saw it. That was brilliant. I, I still am right because truthfully, it doesn't doesn't really capture the beauty of Patrick Bateman. Before we even get into the film, I do want to just talk about perception. You were talking about protests, and I remember the protests about this film. There was something about it when this movie came out that it made it feel a lot more dangerous and a lot more violent than it actually is. And watching it now, you know, 23 years later, I'm just kind of shocked at how much pearl clutching there was about this film because on its surface, this is a comedy. I mean, there is full-on comedic set pieces here. Yes, it's about a serial killer, but there are way worse films about serial killers. I mean, Silence of the Lambs is incredibly more violent than this film. Yeah, I mean, even the music, I would say, of this movie is tipping you off right in the opening credits that it is a comedy. I mean, this is comedy music. But to your point, that's exactly, I think, A, what frustrated Mary Heron making this movie and B, what fascinated her about making this movie was that as she was making this film, she was existing in this world of everybody telling her, your movie is dangerous and trash and nobody wants you to make it. And, and there were all these articles while she was shooting in Toronto about how there are protests on the street and her film was getting shut down left and right by people so angry this was getting made. And she wrote a huge essay in the New York Times about no, like people kept asking me if I was fine about all of these protests that I was like suffering while making this film. We didn't really see anybody. Nobody was out there protesting. It, there were just stories about protesting for the entire seven weeks. And people kept thinking that I was in danger with my life. But no, like most of the hype she felt like around the book and around her film was made up. And that was kind of, I think, why she wanted to do it in the first place. The book came to her attention because she was working in radio and one of the hosts of the show was like, this book is dangerous and it must be protested and it must be shut down. And then afterwards, she asked the host what they thought about it when they read it. And they said, I hadn't read it. I never read it. And so this idea of people being mad at a thing they didn't know what it was and they hadn't read it and they hadn't seen her movie and they didn't know anything about it. That is what really hooked her on this, this idea of people being ignorant and having an opinion anyways. And so she wanted to figure out what this was. And to be fair, if you did read the book, there are differences, right? The book is more graphic. And throughout its development, 
I think certain directors wanted to lean into some parts of it and pull away from other parts of it. So finding that balance of what the book captured without actually recreating everything from the book, I think is part of that balance that Mary Heron had. It was, it wasn't a fully faithful adaptation. It was more a adaptation of what this book is saying. Yeah, kind of exactly. Like her story about when she actually sat down to read it is she was reading it and thinking, oh, this book is hilarious. And then she got to the first graphic murder and she felt so deeply disturbed by what she had been laughing at up until that point that she said that she had to shut the book and walk away from it for months because she felt like she had been tricked into having fun at a thing that was then going to take a dangerous turn. And I actually have really specific memories of this book coming out, even though I was like way too young to have known about this. I did know about this because I remember that they posted an excerpt from this book. I think it was either in Newsweek or Time, probably Newsweek because my parents had a subscription in Newsweek. And they posted like clips of this book before it had even been published. And I, I remember very much that it was like a scene where Patrick Bateman was electrocuting a woman's breasts. And it talked about like the sizzle of her breast meat and how it kind of crackled mm. in sort of bacon terms. And the reaction to that excerpt that was published in Newsweek was so intense that Simon and Schuster, who had been supposed to publish the book, backed out of it and said they weren't even going to publish it because people got so mad just by that little taste. And that little taste, of course, isn't even the whole book. The whole book is about food and restaurants and psychology. And you take that little bit out and the book seems even worse than your imagination of what it could be. But like, this whole thing has been about dangerous hype. And so for Mary Heron, she went on that same arc. You know, when she read the book, like in the early 90s, the 80s had just happened, you know, when this time was set. And it all felt very close and very soon and very dangerous. But by the middle of the 90s, when some time had been put culturally between the 80s and then, she felt like she was able to see the satire that the book was writing about. And that was what she connected into, the satire of what this world had been. So it didn't feel like a docudrama. It felt like a comment. And I will say that when you look at the similarities between the book and the movie, or I guess the differences, he kills over 50 people in the book. Right. And that's a lot to take in when you're reading that, I imagine, you know, as I, I didn't read the book. Um, and he also kills a child in the book. Right. So there are some headlines that I think could get out in front of things that could really worry you that this movie is bad for society to elevate, because I think part of this movie is a commentary and comedy. Like, are we elevating violence here. And I get that fear, but I do also believe that what Mary is saying is completely true. Maybe there were never any protests. It was just a lot of passionate people talking about it and and kind of willing this negative press about this movie more than there actually being boots on the ground. Well, yeah. I mean, in a way, it's basically like modern day internet brouhaha's. Someone is mad about this. Who is mad about it? I don't know. But we're all talking about the someone who is mad about it. Or the way we all kind of concern troll things. Like, I wasn't offended by this comedy, but I can imagine a person in my head who might be offended by this comedy. And therefore, on behalf of this fictitious person that I have just invented, we should we probably shouldn't have this. You know, it, I think we make up so many scandals to be upset about because in a way... We all want to sound like we're a good person who's concerned about others. So we're worried about the kids and we're worried about the innocents and we're worried about all sorts of lies. And we kind of sound, to be honest, 
a little bit like Patrick Bateman right here. Come on, Bryce. There are a lot more important problems in Sri Lanka to worry about. Like what? Well, we have to end apartheid for one and slow down the nuclear arms race, stop terrorism, and world hunger. We have to provide food and shelter for the homeless and oppose racial discrimination and promote civil rights while also promoting equal rights for women. We have to encourage a return to traditional moral values. Most importantly, we have to promote general social concern and less materialism in young people. <laughs> Patrick, <laughs> how thought-provoking. Because I have to say, Paul, watching this movie, one of the things that cracked me up about Patrick Bateman is that this is a person who actually would perform quite well on the internet because he says all the right things. Please yes. don't make fun of dreidels. You, that, that, that is not this. at all how like autism works. And he says, here, giant word salads of all proper things. And people are like, yeah, sure. Okay, what? There's so many similarities between 80s Wall Street culture and social media culture. I mean, it's all about putting out this version of yourself. And we've seen it time and time again where that version doesn't match up with another version and you're constantly performing. You are performing and you're putting your life out there in a very specific catered way that yeah. is exactly the same. Our Instagram grid, our tidy little rectangles are what? Giant business cards of who we are 100%. and how we want to present ourselves and who's got the best font, baby. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. At Delta, we know Mike NHC prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, 8C is Mandy, a foodie. So we offer all types of food options. Because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. Now, let's just talk about one of these voices of warning. Because we mentioned earlier that Oliver Stone and DiCaprio were going to do this movie and the payday was going to be giant. And DiCaprio drops out. And it's a really interesting story because Gloria Steinem takes DiCaprio to a baseball game and talks to him about this movie. She says, you can't do this movie. You just did Titanic. You have this giant audience of young women who look up to you. And if you were to do this movie... They're going to see you being a misogynist. They're going to see you being this killer. You are going to do damage to that fan base. And a lot of people say that that conversation really stuck with DiCaprio. He understood it and he dropped out. Have you heard that? I have heard that. And now, then the punchline, yes. which is that then Gloria Steinem gets married, and the man she marries is Christian Bale's father. So now she is related to Mr. American Psycho, and they've probably shared millions of Thanksgiving dinners together. But 
My theory on it is, did she do her new stepson a favor? Were they dating beforehand or was there any bit of <laughs> like, you know what? I'm going to help my stepson because the truth is Christian Bale wanted to do this movie. And like you said, no one wanted him. Here is a guy who has lost every role to DiCaprio from Gilbert Grape to this boy's life. He is constantly living in DiCaprio's shadow. It almost happens again. And I feel like there was something about this duo because even after DiCaprio leaves, they go to like Ben Affleck. So many people had to sing no before they said yes to Christian Bale. So many people had to be threatened into saying no. Because apparently when they were offering this role to Ewan McGregor over Christian Bale, Christian Bale just called him up and said, this is my part, man. You got to back off. Yeah. Can you imagine Christian Bale in his intense mode saying, no, this is my film. But he really felt that it was his film. Like when he and Mary Heron first started talking about it, he'd never been to a gym in his life. And Mary was like, you should probably work out a little bit. And immediately he got so ripped. And even though they then like let him go and put in DiCaprio, he kept lifting weights. He kept doing his crunches. And people are like, you're insane. You've lost this role. You have lost this role. And he's like, no, I haven't. It will be mine again. And I don't care who I have to threaten and make them drop out. This is my role. And luckily for him, Mary Heron was also just as obsessed. The studio was like, okay, 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 okay. How about Vince Vaughn? And she was like, that guy just did Psycho. You cannot have him go from Psycho to American Psycho. They're like, okay, okay, okay. How about Edward Norton? And she's like, he's not hot enough to be an Edward Norton. And he already had done Primal Fear. I mean, they yeah. like there have been a lot of these younger guys who have done these dark turns at that point. Totally. But they had kind of an interesting fight because the studio was like, Edward Norton is totally hot enough to do it. They, they said hotness is in the eye of the beholder. And Mary Heron said to them, if we were talking about an actress's hotness, you would not say it was in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> You're 100% right. And I think Christian Bale even knew this on some level because not only did he get ripped, he fixed his teeth. Christian Bale didn't have the teeth that we know right now. He knew that his teeth were not perfect. And if he was to play Patrick Bateman, it would be something that would signal that this is an actor who didn't want to go the full length of transformation because Patrick Bateman would have perfect teeth. So he did his teeth. Christian Bale insisted on meeting Brett Easton Ellis as Patrick Bateman, which totally creeped out Brett Easton Ellis. He was driven and he knew what he wanted to do. And I think we talked before about a movie where a performance can kind of take over the entire theme of a film. It's like, we're just watching that. But here- Like There Will Be Blood, like Daniel Plainview. Exactly. And here, I see a brilliant performance surrounded by a dense, rich film. Like, they really work together. And I think we were having that debate a little while ago. And one of the reasons why we wanted to do this movie was, can you have both? Can you have a performance that is, I can't take my eyes off of this character, but yet- there is so much more here. And I believe that that's part of the staying power of this film is its social commentary is so brilliant and universal. And also at the center of it, this performance is so unique and as specific and odd as it is, it's universally identifiable. I actually want to take a second really fast and think about poor Brett Easton Ellis showing up for dinner with who he thinks is going to be just the normal actor, Christian Bale. 
and Patrick Bateman showing up because at this point in Brett Easton Ellis's life, he had never sat across the table from anybody doing Patrick Bateman. Patrick Bateman was like this character that he had created in his mind. And now suddenly somebody is performing Patrick Bateman at him, which has become a very normal thing to happen to Brett Easton Ellis in the years and years and years after this movie came out and we can now picture him. But imagine like inventing this horrible psychotic killer and then realizing you are now facing a three-dimensional object of one and then realizing actually for the rest of your life, you're going to have people coming up to you and saying, I'm so glad you wrote this book. I'm so glad you make this movie because I am Patrick Bateman and now I feel seen, which is a thing that actually happens to like Guinevere Turner and Mary Heron all the time and freaks them out. It's kind of like the inverse of what we were talking about last week with Legally Blonde. All these women coming up and saying like, thank you for making Legally Blonde. And I, that was me. And now I'm a lawyer. But it's people coming up and saying, I'm a really psychotic, cold person who wants to kill and murder and feels adrift and isolated from others. Mm. Thanks. I really appreciate you making me feel seen and recognized. Well, what I think is interesting about this character and why people want to portray it or can embrace it is because this is a character or serial killer that isn't based on a serial killer. We talked about this in the last episode about a little tease about who did he base this on? There are references to serial killers in this movie. He knows facts about them, but Christian Bale is not trying to portray them. And I also believe that Patrick Bateman doesn't look up to them as personalities. I I would find that he thinks that are kind of revolting, you know, on some level, right? Because he does have a disgust for certain things. Yeah. I mean, it's weird. It's like he quotes them like they're the president. You know, there's that strange scene where he's like sitting around with a bunch of his buddies and all his buddies are talking about how women are really stupid and how there's no such thing as a good personality. And he starts quoting serial killers at them. And what I love about the buildup of this scene is he's basically just yes anding them one more level. But it's that one more level that makes them uncomfortable. If they have a good personality and they're not great looking, then who fucking cares? Let's just say hypothetically, okay, what if they have a good personality? (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. There are no no girls girls with with good good personalities. personalities. (laughs) A good personality consists of a chick with a little hard body who will satisfy all sexual demands without being too slutty about things and who will essentially keep her dumb fucking mouth shut. The only girls with good personalities who are smart, or maybe funny, or halfway intelligent, or talented, though God knows what the fuck that means, are ugly chicks. Absolutely. And this is because they have to make up for how fucking unattractive they are. Do you know what Ed Gein said about women? Ed Gein, maitre d' canal bar? No, serial killer, Wisconsin in the 50s. What did Ed say? He said, when I see a pretty girl walking down the street, I think two things. One part of me wants to take her out and talk to her, be real nice and sweet and treat her right. And what the other part of him think? <laughs> what her head would look like on a stick. <laughs> That's a perfect distillation of, you know, this commentary it's making about these types of people. And even when he says it, he says it in a way that is without malice, You hear it and it just kind of goes by you. And that happens throughout the movie. And so I was fascinated to find out that in 2009, Mary Heron shared, and I guess the idea is that she probably wasn't supposed to share this, but she did, that Christian Bale based his performance not on a serial killer, but on Tom Cruise. He had seen Tom Cruise on a talk show. I think she originally said it was Letterman, but 
Internet sleuthing has proven that it was actually Rosie O'Donnell where Tom Cruise was talking and he felt like he could say anything and there was really like nothing behind the eyes. Yeah. I mean, I could see why it was credited to this Letterman interview because there's a Letterman interview where you feel like you get it. We're like, okay, I understand. Because honestly, the stories I've always heard about Tom Cruise is that there is so much intensity going on behind the eyes. And when he shakes your hand, he's like, hey, man, how are you? And he's like memorizing everything about you, like your height, your shoe size, your Zodiac sign, what you're doing on that weekend, and that he will remember them forever, like a very good politician. And the next time he sees you, he'll say, how was that lunch you were on your way to go get at Chipotle that one time I met you? Did you like the chicken as much as you thought? Like that is his like superpower. I've told you that I've watched him come into a party, people swarmed around him, and he had a receiving line where he was giving people advice about everything and anything and was so intently interested in every single person. You couldn't help but fall into that trance because it was the way that people talk about uh, presidents or these transformational figures. You were sucked into their orbit and you were felt like you were the only one there. But I think actually this comparison doesn't quite work for me because Tom Cruise walks in a room and he is like, you're describing it, the center of attention. The fascinating thing about Patrick Bateman is within his very own movie, nobody ever remembers his name. Nobody remembers exactly who he is. Everyone mistakes him for everyone else and he's invisible. I think that Patrick Bateman is a lot more like Tom Cruise's co-star in Oblivion, Andrew Riseborough. Like he mutates. You never quite remember exactly what they look like when you're staring them in their face. And this whole movie is just Patrick Bateman hoping somebody remembers who he is. And even his own lawyer has no idea who he is at the end of the film. He is invisible. And if he could only have like one tenth of the charisma of Tom Cruise, I think he'd be happy. I mean, honestly, in the book, there's this whole runner where Patrick Bateman lives in the same building as Tom Cruise and kind of unnerves him. There's like a moment in the book where like, Tom Cruise is in the penthouse of his building and they're sharing this elevator up. And Patrick Bateman says, I thought you were very fine and bartender. And Tom Cruise looks at him and goes, it was cocktail, not bartender. And then he tells Patrick Bateman that his nose is bleeding, which it is. And he gets the hell out of the elevator as soon as he can. Patrick Bateman could only dream of being Tom Cruise. Well, I don't think he's chasing after the charisma of Tom Cruise. I think he's chasing after this idea of who is Tom Cruise. There is something that distances you from him. Or at least that's what I think Bale was pulling on, that idea that there is nothing behind the eyes. He, you don't know if he's mad at you or if he is going to embrace you or if he's going to embrace you and hate you. Like that idea to me is really what he captured. And I do think to your point, Patrick Bateman is trying to fit in in every All way. All he wants to do is fit in. And because he's fitting in, he is becoming invisible because he doesn't have anything that is unique to him. Everything about him is based on what other people have. I think one of the best and apparent moments of this in the movie and probably one of the biggest scenes of the film is the business card scene, right? This idea that these business cards mean anything when to a normal human eye, they all look 100% the same, whether it's bone, whether it's white, whether it's raised writing, whether it's centered or not, they're just white business cards with pretty much the same formatting. 
And I know there's a lot of internet sleuthing where it's like, look at Patrick Bateman's card. The, the space is off. It's like, it's not about that. I mean, I think that you can read into that and go, oh yeah, he fucked up his own card. Sure, whatever. But to me, it's four people comparing white business cards, trying to be, which is the one that stands out? None of them stand out. You could put them on the table and you couldn't tell who owned which one. And I think that is that idea right here, that there's so much status and privilege and want and desire to have the best and be the best that you realize that all you are are copying somebody else. And that to me is back to what we started with social media to a certain extent. It's like, I'm living this life. I'm pretending to be this thing. I'm not showing you my unique side or my unique side is somehow, you know, smoothed out. New card. What do you think? Whoa. Very nice. Look at that. Picked them up from the printers yesterday. Good coloring. That's bone. And the lettering is something called Cillian Braille. It's very cool, Bateman, but that's nothing. Look at this. That is really nice. Eggshell with Romalian type. What do you think? Nice. Jesus. <laughs> that is really super. How did a nitwit like you get so tasteful? <laughs> I can't believe that Bryce prefers Van Patten's card to mine. But wait. You ain't seen nothing yet. Raised lettering, pale nimbus, white. Impressive. Very nice. Mm. Totally. And I think that that is one of the jokes that really hits in this film kind of stealthily, which is he's surrounded by all of these coworkers, you know, like Justin Thoreau and Matt Ross and Josh Lucas, Bill Sage playing all of his colleagues. And in a normal movie, I would consider it a flaw that I couldn't tell any of his friends apart. But in this movie, it feels like exactly the point. I don't know anything about any of his friends. They're all just this like collage of okay looking white guys in pretty identical suits who all go to the same barber. They're almost like a Greek chorus of just identical guys kind of ragging on each other. Well, you get that at the end when he walks into the wrong office building and someone recognizes him as a completely different person. Yeah, he's just absolutely invisible. And I guess that is one of the funny things I think about influencers is because there's this image I have in my head of an influencer and it's a lady with like kind of a little bit stiff blonde curls going down to her elbows and she's holding a latte and she's leaning against a wall and she has one leg up and she's sort of looking off to the side like, oh, I didn't know somebody was taking my picture. And like, I feel like every influencer has that exact same picture. And at that point, what are they influencing? The exact identical thing that's so generic and so boring and like, do you want to be like any of these identical human beings? I'm sorry. I'm thinking about it because like yesterday we were like driving in a Tesla and I saw somebody decide that they had to pull over by a Tesla sign and take the influencer pose there to some random lady. And I was like, why? Why are we doing this? Who needs to be influenced that you can charge your Tesla here? I don't understand any of this world. Uh, if you want to enjoy a deep dive into that kind of behavior, the Instagram account Influencers in the wild is truly a gift that keeps on giving. I do believe that this culture of just going to a place to be seen is something that we have really adopted on so many different levels. I was in New York recently and my kids went to the Color Museum. Now, New York City is home to probably some of the most famous museums in the world. And they went to the Color Museum, which is 
just an Instagram museum and you see these pop up more and more. It's just a place for you to go and take pictures so you can post that you are at something, that you did something. And that's how restaurants are treated here. We want to go to the right place to be seen. When Christian Bale takes Jared Leto to that restaurant that's a dump, that's the concern. The concern is like, well, who's going to see me here, right? And that culture of New York has now opened up to the masses in a way. You don't have to be rich anymore to be seen. You don't have to, but you can show off, oh yes, I drive a Tesla. Oh yes, I went to the color museum. You look at me in this pit of white balls. Like, isn't this cool and arty? It's like, it's manufacturing experiences to create this sense of FOMO, constant FOMO. I I saw moms posting about how pissed they were at the Taylor Swift concert because they felt like bad moms because every parent was posting how they were at the Taylor Swift concert with their kids and they couldn't afford to go. Like there are these things that we do in society that are just to be seen. And I think that this book really took the exclusive world of that and turned it on its head. But the reason why this movie continues to exist is because we can see how that world has just become a lot more accessible to so many more people. I want to actually play a little bit of that clip that you're talking about. This scene where Patrick Bateman goes to the restaurant with, you know, Paul Allen, his great nemesis, Jared Leto. And not only is Christian Bale enjoying seeing how miserable Paul Allen is being at a restaurant where nobody cool is, he's mocking this whole ritual of food that they eat. You know, this whole idea of like overcomplicated sauces and reductions. This is a real beehive of activity, Halberstram. This place is hot. Very hot. Listen, the... uh... Mud soup and charcoal arugula are outrageous here. Yeah, well, you're late. Hey, I'm a child of divorce. Give me a break. I see they've omitted the pork loin with lime jello. We should have gone to Dorcia. I could have gotten us a table. Nobody goes there anymore. Is that Ivana Trump? And what is fascinating to me about that scene is you are very aware that Patrick Bateman is aware of how ridiculous the world is that they're living in, but maybe nobody else is. Like, Paul Allen doesn't seem aware that he's making fun of this world that they're living in. Everybody else is just living in this really screwed-up world. And what I find so chilling about American Psycho is you could, if you wanted to, read it as Patrick Bateman might be the most sane one here because he's aware that this world is at least insane. You know, at this movie, at the end of it, when he is like, I am gaining no knowledge of myself— My pain is constant and sharp, and I do not hope for a better world for anyone. In fact, I want my pain to be inflicted on others. I want no one to escape. But even after admitting this, there is no catharsis. My punishment continues to elude me, and I gain no deeper knowledge of myself. No new knowledge can be extracted from my telling. This confession has meant nothing. What is also chilling about that speech is we're looking around this room and nobody else is even caring about gaining any knowledge whatsoever at all. Like, is he the most evolved of the least evolved people or what is happening here? Well, I mean, part of this movie is everyone lives in their own bubble and they don't care about what you're even saying. Like he is saying, I do murders and executions. And they said, oh, mergers and acquisitions. Like he is talking to people, they don't even hear what he's saying. I will say, I agree with you. I think that Patrick Bateman's opinions, when they are 
doled out, whether they are about society or about music, are things that he believes. But because he has no empathy, because he has no heart and soul, he can detach himself from this world. And he's the only one that can see it. So when he does talk about the problems, when he does correct somebody about being anti-Semitic, he is not a good person, but because he can see everything in black and white, he can at least describe where the flaws in the world are. Yeah, exactly. He's performing in this world in a way where I was kind of thinking, you know, Bateman, Batman, not that different. No. Bateman is a guy whose dad is rich, had a lot of money. We get the sense that that's why he's working in this firm in the beginning is because this is just the uniform he's supposed to be put on as like a wealthy person of the society who went to the right schools. Here's where you go. Here is your like superhero wardrobe because you are now the rich superhero of this type of town. And it doesn't really fit. And he agonizes over the fit of this uniform. The whole thing, he doesn't feel comfortable in the own mask that he's wearing, which to me is exactly like the Batman of it all, the the Batman that Christian Bale is going to become. Well, and I think there's two parts of this, right? Because there's a part where he's trying to fit in, but whenever he shares those opinions, pop music, society, they're not the opinions of other people, right? So he's not fitting in there. He's just speaking truth, right? Every other part of him is trying to fit in. The clothes, the look, the hair, the face routine, just the chasing of wealth. I think that that's an interesting uh, difference. I also think it's hilarious that if you look back at a movie like Wall Street, there's a speech where Gordon Gecko uh, says, you know, I'm taking over this company. They have 33 vice presidents and I don't know what any of them do. And here's a movie in which every one of Patrick's friends is a vice president and they never seem to be working, right? Even his date book, when it's revealed at the end of what is actually in that date book, it's just drawings of violent images. And he never seemingly is in a meeting. He doesn't want to take meetings. When he goes to work, he puts on Family feud Jeopardy. or Jeopardy, yeah. yeah. You know, he's Jeopardy listening. reruns because it's the middle of the day. Yeah, he's putting on headphones. His whole life is just going to places to be seen and fit in. They're, they're, he's not doing anything. And I don't think that that's unique to him. I think that that is what everyone around him is doing too. There's no place for him. There's no reason to work for anything because there's no fear of him not getting fired. When Tillamook ice cream beckons you to the freezer aisle, which irresistibly creamy flavor do you choose? While you're thinking, try not to fuck up the glass. Tillamook ice cream. Extraordinary dairy. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Now, I know that there's also this theory that has been debunked that he doesn't kill anyone. 
that he is someone who is uh, suffering a schizophrenic break, and these are delusions, and that's that. Mary Heron has said unequivocally that is completely false. She hates movies. Her and Christian Bale hates movies where it's like, oh, it was all a dream. Now I can see why people think that because the cop car blows up at the end. Things are getting really heightened at the end of the film. But I also believe that, to your point, people are so caught up in their own bullshit, they don't even care. They don't even know. He doesn't blend in. And he is taking everybody in because he's trying to mimic it. So he understands society. He understands people. But that's why he also is so bizarre. Like the moonwalk when he does his killing of Paul Allen is hilarious and weird. And I wanted to break that down because that is an improvised moment. That was something that Christian Bale did. It surprised Mary Heron. And it's a great moment of the film. But what do you think is going on there when he's moonwalking around? I don't know. And Brett Easton Ellis also does not love it. And also pretty much all the other actors on set with Christian Bale were like, what is with this guy? He's terrible, right? This guy, he's a bad actor, right? Like why on earth was Mary Heron pushing so hard for this guy who everything he says sounds completely artificial and false. Like he's speaking English as though it's his second language and doesn't understand any of the intonations. You know, that is how Patrick Bateman walks through the world, like this performance of an alien who has crash landed on earth and is trying to figure out how human beings behave. And so it makes sense in this alien logic kind of way. I'm a fun guy. We're having fun. I, moonwalks are fun, right? I'm just going to do a moonwalk, right? Is that is there any thought to it behind that? Is he enjoying himself doing the moonwalk? It, who knows? But what you hear in his voice is almost like a performance of happiness that sounds like it's blending on mania and either we're seeing the Patrick Bateman that he wishes he actually could be. Could he, does he actually wish he could be this happy or is he just influencing happiness the way like, I don't believe most influencers are really meaning their smiles. Well, there's something about it where he is putting on a show. There is something about the way that he kills, right? He kills for different reasons. You know, with Paul Allen, it's this lust or envy, right? And, and with the homeless man that we see him kill, it's out of disgust with, you know, his partners or his sexual partners, it's sex and violence mixed together, this, this other. But in each case, it seems like it's also building up out of like, he's upset about something. And this is his like catharsis too. Like it, it almost made me think of like alcoholism or like an eating disorder or like bulimia or something where like, there's a way of, punishing yourself by giving yourself a pleasure that's so dark that you know is also bad. This man is watching pornography often and violent movies like uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre in the background, right? This is performative acts of sex and violence. And I think that he, in a way, is doing the same thing. Like, I think he's playing to a camera that doesn't exist. When he's fucking in that scene, you watch him watch himself in the mirror. He is putting himself... In a movie, he's taping himself too. Like he is performing. And so I do believe that as we are watching it, we are also watching him in his own movie, which is something that I think a lot of us do. Like we're the stars of our own movie. I know Brett Easton Ellis says, oh, it's out of character. I think it's so in character because there's a flair, even in the in the way that he speaks to that homeless man, the way that he lures him in, the way that then he like, twist the knife before he even twists the knife, literally. Like he wants to create some sort of effect. He knows 
Like he's so well versed in the art of performance that he's like challenging himself there. You know, the, the fact that he literally mimics the scene from Texas Chainsaw Massacre later in the film. He chases after this woman with a chainsaw naked in the building. And it's all for his larger mythology. And I think what kind of crushes him at the end. And what's so sad is, and no one cares. And no, and it's and it nothing leaks and nothing gets him in trouble. And it's like, it's like the kid who wants to do bad and his parents don't pay attention to him. Like he just, no matter what, just goes away. Yeah. For people's own motivations, you know, like the realtor who is like, oh, you seem aware that she seems aware that he was using this apartment as a murder house and she doesn't care because she just wants to be able to sell this building and make money off of it and keep on with her life. She's got her own interests here. You saw the ad in the Times? No. Yeah. I mean, yeah. In the Times. There was no ad in the Times. I think you should go now. But I think, I want to know what happened here. Don't make any trouble, please. I suggest you go. What do you think is happening in that scene? Like, I, I was looking at that too, because this there are these moments, right, where people have made this idea. Like I said, it's been debunked, so I don't want to even go down that rabbit hole. But these are the moments that I think create this confusion. Well, how could he have chase this woman in an apartment building with a a chainsaw and dragged her body up all these flights of stairs. But we see time and time again, he's literally dragging a bag with a dead body in it. Blood is trailing from it. No one pays attention. Everyone's caught in their own shit. And now with cell phones, people are even more caught in their own shit. So I think that those are the moments, like when he goes to the apartment and there's so many bodies in that apartment. Wait, how, how did this go away? And didn't even get talked about on the news like wait what like and i think that that that's the most upsetting thing but that these are the scenes that i think people look to and go nope it was all in his head there was nobody ever there he just imagined that totally because like what's even scarier than patrick bateman going ignored is the idea that any of us could be killed by patrick bateman and our deaths would also go ignored i mean for me the one that kind of always trips me up and i'm like what is happening is when he's having that shootout with the cops and he starts just firing a handgun in the direction of the cop car and then it explodes. It When it explodes, the whole world just goes quiet and he's kind of looking at his gun. He's looking at the explosion like... Yeah, he's Did shocked. Did do that? Did I do that? possible to have everything kind of be blended. I think it's possible to believe that he definitely killed a bunch of people and maybe he hallucinated the cop thing and those can coexist. Do you think so? I think so. That they can blend. I think that we could see, and I think the movie is slowly putting us through his perspective, right? Because when he looks at the ATM, we see feed me that cat, right? That didn't pop up on the screen. We're, we're in his brain. I think that all the killings happened, but I do believe that that explosion is part of like the movie in his mind. The movie in his mind is always running. That that explosion is such a movie explosion. It's shocking. You know, it, it and it does take you out for a second. 
but I do think it's just we're slowly the movie is slowly warping our perspective of what his world is. And I think we have these moments where we shake out of it, like that apartment full of those dead bodies, you know, oh shit, wait, he's been doing this a lot. Like it it stops the cuteness of it, you know, in ways. I think it's a, a, a little mix and match uh, of both things. This is why Brett Easton was nervous about making it a movie. Because he was like, you know, when I wrote American Psycho, I don't even know how much of it is real. I wrote it out and I don't know how much of Patrick Bateman is actually happening or not. And I'm allowed to do that because in a book, Things can be blurry, but his concern when it got adapted was movies are not allowed to be so blurry. Usually, usually movies have to make a call. Like, is he killing the people or not? Like, where is reality in this movie? And he felt like no movie could actually capture that, which is why when he was trying to even write his own script, like Ellis tried to write the script for this all the way back in like the David Cronenberg Brad Pitt days, which was just a giant comedy riot because David Cronenberg was like, for my version of this movie, I don't want any scenes in restaurants and I don't want any violence. And Brett Easton Ellis was like, okay, I'm not quite sure what's left. He wanted a, a musical scene on the World Trade Center as the final scene. Yeah, and he got one. And he got, he got one of this song right here by Barry Manilow. There's so much love to share I'm singing to the world Don't you see it all come around The feelings everywhere I mean, a movie where you could build up to a Barry Manilow number in the World Trade Center seems like Brett Estenels is saying at least some of this is in his head, but not everything. And I mean, that idea of blending, I think that is where Mary Heron lied in a way that's really smart and kind of, I would say, discombobulating for us in the audience. I mean, like most famously when she has William Defoe in here playing the investigating detective, who's not technically a cop. He's been like hired yes. by Paul Allen's girlfriend to figure out what's happening. Family. Yeah. Mary Heron directed him to do a couple takes with Christian Bale as though he was absolutely suspicious of Patrick Bateman and a couple takes where he didn't suspect him at all. And then she just cut these takes together. So as we're watching it, we can't even tell how Willem Dafoe is feeling from scene to scene. And I love how upsetting that is right because it's yeah. not it's not solving anything for you i mean this was really her problem with the oliver stone idea of it all was that oliver stone when he was looking at the script was like well i want to know why patrick bateman is killing and tell me about his mom and where'd all this come from and we must solve why this man is evil because if we solve it then we can understand it and then we can do this hard-hitting film about why people turn evil and mary heron's take on it was always some people are just evil and like we don't know why and it just is. And isn't that scarier when you don't know what's happening? I agree. I think the book is also always giving you a reason of why he's doing this. And we see a little bit of that with the homeless man. Like he's justifying it. But in a scene before that, he's talking about how we need to support the homeless population, right? So he's an enigma, but he also has disgust for it. Like he, this, the scene that's most chilling to me is what did he do with those two women? You know, we, we see the scene where he gets out of bed after they've had sex, he's taped it. And then he opens that drawer, that drawer full of instruments and says, we're not done yet. And the next scene, we're just at the end of that. And we get reference to that. She may have to go to a doctor. She's really messed up. I'm like, 
what's going on there? I, I don't think you need to know. I think it's actually better that you don't know. And going in this idea of ambiguity, like what could that possibly be? Where would your mind go in what he's doing? This idea of him looking at humans really as like objects, like I want to pick them apart. I want to chop off their head. I know in the book he eats them um, or tries to. I think that there is a weird thing, obviously a psychological thing where he is trying to dissect them or get inside of them in a way that is trying to figure out like, what does this cause pain? Does this not cause pain? Like, I don't know. Do you, do you buy that idea? That's fascinating. Like he's cutting open people to find where a soul would be or like yes, what they or have that he doesn't have. Like there's a part of me that thinks like if you punched Patrick Bateman in the face, he wouldn't be hurt. There's a great moment here. You talked about Willem Dafoe doing those like three different takes. Willem Dafoe takes out the CD and people can talk about this. And I believe this is actually true. The way that he holds a CD, it shines a light in Patrick Bateman's eye. Now, most people, when a light is shining in your eye, you would, you would go, Hey, well, you know, or you blind your eye or you'd throw on glasses, whatever, you know, you just, Oh, you know, you, you'd flinch. It's been known that uh, serial killers don't really react to things or react to things a lot slower. It's, it's kind of like they are missing that piece of themselves, that like that instinct to protect themselves or react. So part of that reasoning of that scene is why he shows that CD is not because he's excited about Huey Lewis is because he's trying to test Patrick Bateman. Does he have that thing that I know serial killers have? or killers have. And and Patrick Bateman doesn't react at all to having that light shined in his eye. And I think that that's just tying those two ideas together. Like, why do they move in a certain way? Why do I move in a certain way? Like I And that, that wrestling with that idea, why am I not like this? Why am I on this earth and I can't figure out how to be like them? The idea that you can test for serial killers by shining a light in their eye is very funny. And I have never I know, heard yeah. that before. And I feel like all cop shows would be a lot shorter if that was true. I guess it sounds kind of like the replicant test in Blade Runner. This idea of his victims being torn apart in a way of trying to understand humanity or a soul makes me think about how my favorite performance in this movie is actually one of his victims, which is Kara Seymour. She plays Christy, the woman who gets brutalized in that scene. And then he manages to kind of lure her back in for a second round by promising her tons of money. And her scenes with Patrick Bateman, I just find fascinating, Kara Seymour, because like the way she plays this sex worker, she kind of plays her like, like Christy, the name that he gives her, is the only person in Patrick Bateman's life who pays enough attention to Patrick Bateman to actively dislike him. To actively mm. be like, no, I am scared of this guy. Because in all of her scenes, she's looking at him like she's either wary or a little bit bored, but also wary. Like she is the one person. Well, her job to stay alive in general is to be aware of her surroundings. And he is surrounded by people who literally don't give a shit. They're safe at all times. She lives a life that is not safe. Yeah. And you see her look at him with more just alertness than anybody else. And so when she gets hurt the second time, it actually really just breaks my heart because I love this character. Like, I love her reticence around him. And I love that kind of the tension that he gets when he puts her together with one of his other friends who's like a lot richer. Elizabeth, who I think is so funny because she's played by Guinevere Turner, who also like co-wrote the film with Mary Heron. So here's like Guinevere Turner talking to Christy in this way where you get this whole insight into like class dynamics 
things that people are paying attention to and not paying attention to. And just picturing Christy taking all of this in and being really next to Bateman, the only one who knows exactly what is happening here. Where did you two meet? Oh, God. We met at, um, oh, God, at the Kentucky Derby in 85 or 86. You were hanging out with that bimbo Allison Pool. Hot number. What do you mean? She was a hot number. Get a platinum card, she'd give you a blowjob. Listen, this girl worked at a tanning salon. Need I say more? What do you do? She's my cousin. Uh-huh. She's from France. Where's your phone? I've got to call Harley. Where do you summer? Southampton? What I love about that scene, I think it continues to underline what we're talking about here, is he understands dynamics. What he endeavors to do is make people uncomfortable. And through that, that's his only joy is in knowing, okay, this is going to make them uncomfortable. Uh, And maybe going back to what we said earlier, like maybe he doesn't believe in those things or see those things about society so clearly, but he knows that those are not accepted things to say in society. Oh, we need to deal with the homeless. Oh, we have bigger problems about nuclear war and climate change. Like, Like he knows that those things will make people freaked out. And he's living a life of constantly being freaked out because he's constantly feeling like I don't fit in. Well, and I think Karen is really doubling down on that because she always said the reason that this movie got an NC-17 wasn't any of the violence because there really isn't that much no, on-camera much. violence compared to what we consider to be a violent movie, especially around this time. You know, we're like heading into the rise of torture porn. Like at this moment, she said it got an NC-17 because there is that threesome with Bateman, Christie, and I think it's Sabrina in the first one. It's the one where he's like flexing. Very tame, yes. It's very, very tame. tame. Very tame, but- She said the reason that it got that rating is because the expression on the girls' faces was bored. And so the idea that people are watching a threesome where the girls looked bored by the guy made viewers uncomfortable. And we associate feeling uncomfortable with wrong. So much. You know, we're always like, it's problematic, which means sometimes something specific, but a lot of times it just means I'm uncomfortable and I can't really be articulate about what this is. And it must just therefore be wrong. And if I say problematic, I don't have to explain myself anymore than that. You know, it's kind of like a conversation stopper. And I think she really felt like that was what happened here was just the boredom, not the sex, not what was happening on screen, but that nobody seemed into it. And that made people's skin crawl. I want to just address to this idea. We often say, oh, that person's a psycho. That that's a psychopath. Right. And I wanted to just break down that term for a second as well. Right. Because it is one of those terms that people throw around a lot. but you know, here are some of the things, a checklist, if you will. Check out anybody in your your family because this movie basically shows you you could be standing next to a wolf in sheep's clothing, right? And oftentimes we are because this idea that, oh, he was the nice neighbor next door, never, you know, never did a thing. You know, back from Norman Bates, that kind of the danger is right there and we don't even see it. The most dangerous people don't seem to be serial killers. It, it's the the ones that we don't suspect. So does Patrick Bateman display all the signs of uh, someone who is a psychopath. Lack of empathy and sincerity, yes. Behavior problems that occur early in life, we have no idea. Superficial charm, yes. I think that he's trying for super, you know, it, it's he's trying to be charming and he feels like, oh, I can connect with them on music. Lack of impulse control, 
Absolutely. Every time when you see him look at that business card, he breaks out into a sweat. You can read everything in that moment. You know, you see him screaming at those people in the laundromat. You know, these, like he, he can't keep it together. Lack of emotional depth. Absolutely. I, you never see him go deep. No realistic or long-term plans in life. Well, he won't, he refuses to kind of commit to Reese Witherspoon throughout the movie. Tendency to tell pathological lies. Never heard of Huey Lewis in the news right there. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, feeling bored, frustrated, or angry easily. Absolutely. You feel like this character is a hamster running in a wheel. He's always trying to do something, right? Egocentricity. We got it. Parasitic lifestyle. We got it. And failure to accept the consequences of his or her own actions. And I think that this brings us to an interesting point of the film, the end confession. This confession that was shot 15 times to basically wear him down. And I think a lot of people feel like, oh, this is him accepting responsibility. But I don't see the ending like that. I don't see him accepting responsibility. I see him or that moment as him trying to take credit for. Really? Okay, I want to listen to it and try to see if I hear what you're saying. I ate some of their brains. And I tried to cook a little. Tonight, I, uh... (laughs) I just (laughs) had to kill a lot of people! And, um... (laughs) I'm not sure (laughs) I'm gonna get away with it this time. So, uh, I mean... I'm a pretty, uh, I mean, I guess I'm a pretty sick guy. Take credit for, explain yourself. I want to understand this. Okay. This whole movie, he's narrating his life. We are seeing how he feels, right? And, and what he feels. But in that confession, you know, he says like, I'm a, I'm a pretty sick guy. Like it, like even that feels to me like he's undercutting what he has done. I think he wants attention. He's calling his lawyer. He's not calling the cops. He wants to make sure that his legacy is secured. If he is going to go down, he's going to confess it all. And it's so funny that he calls his lawyer. Like, why his lawyer? There's so many other people in the world that he could call. His lawyer doesn't even recognize him. So I I do think that this confession isn't about feeling guilt. This confession isn't about being remorseful because I think there's a part of him that feels like maybe I'll get up and they'll come in here with guns blazing and they'll shoot me dead. And I need people to know where I was and what I did. And I will finally be free because I'll be recognized as something. I am a serial killer. And he can't even be that. And there, and there's like a, a real sadness to that. Like all he's trying to do is to get somebody to recognize him as something other. And he can't fucking do it. I mean, I definitely agree with you on the sadness. I mean, he can't even break up with his girlfriend in a way where they seem like they're even talking about existing in the exact same relationship. You know, I I didn't realize when we were doing this that we were doing like two movies back to back where like Reese Witherspoon gets dumped at a restaurant by a boyfriend who thinks that they should be living different lives. But let's listen to this one and just how differently she plays it. It's over, Evelyn. It's all over. Touchy, touchy. I'm sorry I brought up the wedding. Let's just avoid the issue, all right? 
Now, are we having coffee? I'm fucking serious. It's fucking over us. This is no joke. Uh, I don't think we should see each other anymore. But your friends are my friends, and my friends are your friends. I really don't think it would work. Something. I know that your friends are my friends, and, uh, and I, I've thought about that. You can have them. You're really serious, aren't you? Yes, I am. What about the past? Our past? We never really shared one. You're inhuman. No, I'm in, I'm in touch with humanity. Evelyn, I'm uh, sorry, I just... Uh, you're not terribly important to me. Oh no! 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 I mean, she's I like, my, we shared uh, such a life together, and he's like, did we? Did we? Have we really ever been coexisting? You know? And what I think is fascinating about her and this world that he's trying to get recognition in is, you know, to me, the Reese character here is just as mentally unhealthy as he is. She's been dating this guy who clearly doesn't seem to like her and she doesn't seem to like him either. And she's also just like bought into this like superficial world that they're both agreeing to live in as long as possible and doesn't really want it to end. And I think that's why I find this film to be so chewy is I appreciate that like Mary Heron and Guinevere Turner wrote it so that like all the other people around him, especially the women are not victims. They have their own just weird shit going on too. every single person in this movie has their own weird shit going on, their own narrative that they're living in. You know, Chloe Sevigny, like as his secretary, seems to be living in this fantasy where like her boss is in love with her and maybe he just can't be with her because there's so much tension and and, and that he can't handle himself around her. And she hears this scene that they're having completely differently than the way that it's existing in his reality. Do you want me to go? Yeah. I don't think I can control myself. I know I should go. I know I have a tendency to get involved with unavailable men. And, I mean, do you want me to go? I think if you stay, something bad will happen. I think I might hurt you. You don't want to get hurt, do you? No. No, I guess not. I don't want to get bruised. Like, he is unable to share reality with anyone in this movie. Anyone. I agree with you. That is so chilling. Although he doesn't actually want to be friends with the people who want to be friends with him anyways. I I love how he gets out of having to have, like, dinner with somebody he doesn't want to have dinner with. Well, oh boy, listen, I've got to go. Thank you, Victoria. Uh, maybe we could do lunch one day next week. You know, I'm downtown. I don't Wall know, Victoria. I'm at work now. all the well, time. Well, what about a Saturday? Next Saturday? Sure. Can't, I'm afraid. I'm not Nathalie Mays. Listen, I've really got to go. I'll, Christ, I'll call you. Okay. Oh, I love this moment, too, because if you watch that scene, there's a meme of it, too. Watch his facial expression change as he turns. It's like a moment, but it's from big smile to just to you see that mask slip. And we're talking about a movie where the mask is coming off. And I think that there's something about this idea of like, I'm holding it all in, I'm holding it all in. The movie is like, I'm saying it more and more. He says it to the the bartender in the crowded bar, like you said. But he's saying that, she can't hear it. Then he's saying it to a girl across the way. She doesn't hear it because she didn't want to hear it. And 
it's like, do you see me? Do you see me? Do you see me? Like there, there is this like want, but it also, I think is, it, it captures something else too. It's like the consequences of the actions of these people in finance, you know, we could, we can see this now years later, the big short things like that, which he's also in great in this idea, you know, a different idea though, but, but actually the same idea, someone warning everybody that the bottom is falling out here. This is not good. This is bad. Like he literally is that same type of character. God, listen to me. This is not going to work. And no one does, you know. I mean, and I, I agree with this policy that we're doing now, which is when mass violent attacks happen, newspapers have been downplaying the name of the killer as much as yeah. they can, you know, so that we're not elevating mass shooters into celebrities the way that it felt like we did for a very long time and being like, tell us everything about them and what were they like and blah, 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 blah. I think we have made a conscious effort to shift the spotlight away from the killer to the victims as much as possible so that people aren't killing in order to be famous and recognized by the world. But also in the same time that we're doing this, I mean, when you watched American Psycho in 2000, you saw Christian Bale's like grooming routine in the morning and all of his cleansers. And you thought that is the sign of a mentally unwell person Mm -hmm. who is incredibly vain and should probably go seek help. After I remove the ice pack, I use a deep pore cleanser lotion. In the shower, I use a water-activated gel cleanser. Then a honey almond body scrub. And on the face, an exfoliating gel scrub. And now we watch a scene like that and we're like, oh, look at that self-care. I should probably just buy all of this, you know? Well, that's TikTok, right? There's Yeah. yeah. We basically live this every single day of our life, all day, every day. And our famous beloved movie stars are always doing this. Good morning, guys. I'm going to take you through my morning goop routine. I go straight to the gym after I have my coffee. And then when I come home, I do my little skincare ritual. It's also part of my like mental ritual to do my skincare. I always start with our Cloudberry exfoliating jelly cleanser. Oh no. Is Gwyneth killing people, Amy? Is that what you're saying? If she is, it's in the most tasteful way possible. You know, I think that this movie also says something that's a little bit broader, which is there are no consequences for rich people. Yeah. I think it's is, part of why it hits so well now, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't think we're having these pointed discussions through the 2000s about how the Bateman bankers of the world were ruining everything. This is just a world in which you will be protected his dad protects him from doing any work. No one asks him to do anything. You know, we we end on this moment where we watch, you know, his secretary, who he has been incredibly misogynistic to throughout the entire film, look in his book and see all this sort of stuff. Her shining moment, her like all work and no play moment. Yeah, but I feel like it. he'll come back to work the next day and it will not be, she'll just kind of hold that the same way that the, the sex worker holds it. She and the sex worker are the only two people that we really meet that are poor. Mm-hmm. And they are the two people that seem creeped out by him. Yeah, them and the homeless men. They're the only three. Right, yes. Person. Yeah. Like Brett Easton Ellis has said really clearly, like he never saw this as a feminist book. And I think in Mary Heron's hands, it becomes a, an idea about a story about this type of man. I think they were both writing it from kind of similar positions. Like, Brett Easton Ellis was writing this because he felt like he was surrounded by this type of guy 
in the 80s and he felt really distanced from them because he couldn't participate all the way because as he said like I was gay and being gay is really a distance. We're 4% of the population. We do not share a lot of the same feelings and experiences as these other guys do, was his talk about it. And Mary Heron had a similar experience because she went from America to studying at Oxford. And she said that was her one time hanging out with the upper classes and these upper class men she met who she said, quote, travel in gangs. And that when she read this book, she recognized these like wealthy, privileged, handsome young men in this sense of entitlement, in their obsession with each other. She said that they're so competitive with each other that sometimes they would only want to sleep with a woman if one of the other men also wanted to sleep with her. And so they were around these kind of toxic brews of masculinity. And that's what I kind of think is fascinating. Like Ellis was writing like an anti-bro book. And it almost makes you think, is an anti-bro book by definition a pro-woman book? Or is it just the enemy of my enemy is my friend? I mean, that's interesting too. I mean, because this movie, we talked about the warnings of this movie. Like, you know, this movie was like, well, it's very homophobic, right? And it's like, well, but it's written by someone who is gay. And, you know, so it's like, it's an interesting, like, well, they're sharing something about what they're seeing in culture. And this is the idea that we always get into. Can you comment on something without being something? Can you have a lead character that you were saying is bad doing something that is bad without having to say that is bad? And I think the answer is, for the most part, no. Uh, I think we saw that with Licorice Pizza. You can't just let people exist without a penalty because it can be misinterpreted as you believe this thing. You hope the audience is smart enough, but clearly they're not because... That's why these stockbrokers are coming up and saying, I am you. I talked to my friends who were on Silicon Valley and they would meet people in, you know, in Silicon Valley going, I am you. And like, don't be me. That, that we are <laughs> the bad version of you. We're the comedy. Don't be me. I mean, that's why I think I almost want to do maybe down the road this year. I want to do Wolf of Wall Street because I feel like we had the same fight about Wolf of Wall Street. And now we also have the Leonardo DiCaprio being able to grow into the role of playing this type of character at all. Yeah. But to me, I feel like one of the def- the big differences is like Wolf of Wall Street is about the ambition to be rich and this, the lack of ambition in the score, but the lack of ambition to, to work in this field at all, I find so chilling. I want to really talk about that movie in contrast to this at one point too, because I think what's so fascinating about Wolf of Wall Street is he is someone that Patrick Bateman would be very envious of. I think the casting is great for where it landed, that he got to do that and Bale gets to do this because there is something about Bale's performances that across the board have this uncomfortability to it. You know, I think that that's maybe part of the method acting, the reason why people feel uncomfortable with him on set, the reason why he's so extreme. And I, and I think it would be very hard to manufacture that alienness that I think is very much what you feel when you see Christian Bale. It's it's different than even when you see Daniel Day-Lewis, another notorious method actor. This. Yeah, I love that you're talking about him on set because when I was going back and trying to pull clips of Bale talking about this movie, I realized when you pull clips from him talking about this movie while being in the middle of shooting it, he's doing his interviews just straight up in the Patrick Bateman voice. Oh yeah, he didn't, ch- he didn't drop the voice until the rap party. Yeah, here, I'll play one that he shot on the set and then I'll follow it up with one that he shot right afterwards. Whereas... I went and hung out with a lot of Wall Street people in New York before doing this. And um, whereas a lot of them said that they're actually making more money now than they did in the 80s, in the late 80s, they were like rock stars. In the midst of that is Patrick Bateman. 
physically, you know, it was essential. It wasn't just the vanity of an actor that Bateman have a six-pack and all of that. You know, he, he talks about it. He's incredibly narcissistic. Um, and, uh, you know, the aesthetic is always important with every character, but more so with Bateman. You know, with him, the clothes really do make the man. And much as the same way as I would arrive on the set, put on the suits, have my hair done and everything, makeup, and then be able to play Bateman, he does exactly the same thing in his mornings with his routine. He puts on his mask in order to be able to perform, you know, for the rest of the day. I mean, there's just so many weird connections in this. Like, here in this movie, I was laughing because, like, one of Patrick Bateman's excuses for not wanting to, like spend more time with Willem Dafoe as he's like, I have a lunch meeting with Cliff Huxtable. And that just kind of goes right over Willem Dafoe's character's heads and ours. And we're like, Cliff Huxtable, he's just pulling out the character name from the Cosby show. Which I'm saying nowhere. he lives in a movie. That's he the whole idea. He lives in a movie. But how terrifying that he pulled out the name of Bill Cosby. Like, did somebody know something about Bill Cosby back then that was being whispered? Oh no, about? I think that, that I think that that like it's just I think that that was like a great name. A Cliff Huxtable is not a name that you know you could say like oh with uh, Mike Brady. And if you say Mike Brady, you'd be like oh is that a reference to like uh, the Brady Bunch? You wouldn't. It, you could argue it's not Cliff Huxtable. You can't argue that that name is okay. You but know, out that's of how, all that's the how names, out of all the names, that's a really scary name. And then I love just the fact that like in today's society. Everybody just wants to play Patrick Bateman. Like, if you're Googling for, like, Patrick Bateman homages, you have your pick, man. You can get your Patrick Bateman being played by, like, Huey Lewis. You can get your Patrick Bateman being played by Scott Disick from the Kardashians. You can get both right now. Here they are. Here's both of them. And also imagine the weirdos getting murdered. Jesus, the most exciting record so far. It should be obvious by now that New Slaves is the undisputed masterpiece on Jesus. A song so catchy, most people won't even remember the lyrics. In 2005, Lionsgate released this, The Uncut Vision. I think it's an undisputed masterpiece. A movie so entertaining, most people probably don't listen to the message. Most people probably don't listen to the lyrics. But they should, because it's not just a great character study, but a sardonic metaphor for 1980s greed and materialism. Hey, Al! Here's what I'll just say about Huey Lewis for one second, too. This is a movie where we didn't go into all these details, but many people did not want to give their clothes, basically their stamp of approval to anything about this movie, right? They didn't want him to be murdering people in a certain suit. The balls that Huey Lewis has to not only allow his song to be in this film, and and notoriously, Huey Lewis is hard to get. It's expensive, right? And it meant that he got it and liked it. And that's what I kind of love about Huey Lewis. You got to give it up for him. And, uh, you know, Phil Collins never saw the movie. He thought it was going to be too graphic. And his song is obviously played in there. But like when you look at the music rights of this, somebody had to work out some deals here because this is a low budget movie. And for anyone who knows any of that kind of stuff, like needle drops are expensive. Well, it's funny because, like, yeah, you can hear like when they play Whitney Houston, quote unquote, it's actually not Whitney Houston. It's like a cover of Whitney Houston, not the real thing because they couldn't get the real greatest love of all. That's what's fascinating to me about this is I feel like we really have times where we're not seeing a movie straight, you know, where there's so much buzz and hype and like confusion around it that you watch it the first time and you're like, this sucks. And then it's not until you watch it 10 years later that you realize it was just the hype that sucked. This is how I feel about Babylon. But we actually do specifically know that it happened to this movie. You know, not only did Ebert see it at Sundance and he was like, horrible. And then six months later, he was like, great. I mean, Guinevere Turner was like, when it premiered at Sundance, 
not only was nobody else laughing except the people who made the film who knew that it was a comedy and everybody else was just so freaked out that they shouldn't be laughing at this movie that had all of these protests around it and all of these scandals about it. Like Guinevere Turner was supposed to get dinner with Kevin Smith after the premiere at Sundance and Kevin Smith canceled. He was like, I'm so sorry. I got caught up. I got busy. And it took him years later to tell her, I thought your movie was so bad that I didn't know how to sit down and talk to you about it right afterwards. So I just pretended I was busy. But then I did see American Psycho again years later on television. And it's great. And I'm so sorry. And I was a moron. By the way, I didn't like it the first time I saw it, too. I thought it was weird and I didn't dig it. And I and and it is interesting that hype can control a lot of stuff. And what we're seeing in our culture across the board is that we read the article, we read the take, and then we move away. And that's why I think when you look at like, oh, well, this is actually the story of Monica Lewinsky. Oh, this is the story of Britney Spears. Like here are the stories that we didn't hear because we just heard the clickbait one and culture moves so quickly that we don't go backwards a lot. And so I think it's always like a revelation big. Oh, wait, that's what really happened. That's what really happened with Pam Anderson and Tommy Lee. But we get one narrative and it's almost like if it makes an, if it checks out, it's like we're all bad cops. Like, yeah, 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 that checks out. Let's go. Next, next one. <laughs> you know, it's like we don't do we don't do any more investigating. Wait, that's fascinating. Because if there is one thing that makes Patrick Bateman feel alive, it's giving us his hot take on what he thinks about bands. And right. so this being the hot take movie, you know, yeah. this movie's basically saying, hey, don't trust the guy with the hot take. He's probably got an axe. And now we still go forth and trust all these hot takes. Like, oh, this this is problematic. Okay. By the way, I got to say, I don't even know if there can be quantified as hot takes. They were really well-researched, informed opinions. <laughs> so, Amy, tell us what is next on the docket. Well, Paul, I'm glad you asked. Because I feel like we've had a fun month jumping around all sorts of stereotypes about over-the-top femininity, over-the-top 80s masculinity, being satired in the 2000s. What if we go to a movie that is the kind of movie starring the kind of character that when people are like, that's a real man. That is a real Hollywood man-man movie. This is one of the films they picture in their mind. What if we go and we do Steve McQueen's Bullet? Ooh, another movie that I feel like I watched very quickly and made an opinion about it. And I would like to see how that stands up. Okay, I'm excited. Let's take a listen to the trailer. Detective Lieutenant Frank Bullet, some other kind of cop. Pity the guy he works for. Lieutenant, don't try to evade the responsibility. In your parlance, you blew it. What the hell is going on here? A high-speed pursuit? Two men are killed? An officer in the hospital? A witness almost murdered? Captain Baker would like to have a word with you. Now listen to me, Lieutenant. All right, nail him. I want him written off. Do you let anything reach you? I mean, really reach you? Or are you so used to it by now that nothing really touches you? You're living in a sewer, Frank. Day after day. With you, living with violence is a way of life. Living with violence and death. All right, you can get Bullet wherever you find your streaming films. And remember, check out your local public library where you can rent and stream these films for free. That's right, no streaming service required. You can get them for free on Canopy. Uh, It's a really amazing service. Or just check your local public library. They got a whole thing. 
A big thank you to our producer, Josh Richman, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, and our executive producers, Cody Fisher and Amelia Chapelo, and our MVP, Molly Reynolds. Our theme song is by Michael Cassidy, and our fan art is by Kim Troxell. Follow Unspooled on Twitter and Instagram and join in the conversation about all things Unspooled on the Paul Shear Discord at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, and you can get a deck of Unspooled playing cards and more merch at podswag.com. Finally, See the official API list of Unspooled Films and more about the show at unspooledpod.com. 